So we're up here on the mesa. The drive is just starting. They're gathering up the cows. Albert's moving back and forth, putting a little pressure on the front end of the herd uh, to get them moving up. It's uh, the sun hasn't risen yet, but first light has kind of moved across this landscape. We're starting here with our field producer, Matt Collins, so that we can take you to Wyoming's Upper Green River Valley, a place where the rugged individualism of the American West matches the people and the landscape. So they've finished up pushing cows for the morning. The sun is up, the temperature's warming, and cows are happily moving along the highway. And in spectacular fashion, the light is catching the dust kicked up by their hooves. It sweeps across kind of the sagebrush hills and it's touching the Wyoming range across the valley as the sun kind of comes up over the wind rivers. This is just as good as it gets. Working Wild You, a show where we explore what it means to share the working landscape with wildlife from the crossroads of culture and science. I'm Jared Beaver, and if you remember, in the last episode, we started to hash out the problem with wolves. And we decided the problem was that people don't have a shared vision about how to live with wolves. My name is Alex Few, and today we're going to revisit our past and the policies and science that set the stage for westward expansion and rangeland management. Here, we met with Albert Summers, whose relationship with the land, livestock, and wildlife goes back quite a while. My name's Albert Summers. Um, I'm a fourth generation rancher in uh, the Green River Valley of, of Sublet County. I'm the son of an old man that was the son of an old man. Albert lives in a working wild landscape where the wide open patchwork of private and public land support an abundance of wildlife, including endangered species, large predators, and one of the longest migratory paths for wildlife in the lower 48. We still see elk, we still see deer, we still got moose, we, you know, antelope, um, you know, everything's still here and I think people enjoy that. I think ranchers enjoy that. The high desert of the Upper Green sits between three prominent mountain ranges where wildlife migrate to and from the high meadows, passing right along Albert's property and through the pastures where his livestock graze. Ranchers have always liked, you know, liked wildlife. At times they're, they're a challenge and a problem and uh, you have to manage it. It's no surprise when livestock and wolves share space Conflicts happen. Wolves eat meat. But what it looks like to prevent or react to these conflicts has significantly changed in the Upper Green from the time wolves were eradicated to their recovery and today. We visited with Albert because his ranch and family's history speak to a century of land settlement acts, range, and wildlife policies that settled this region and much of the West to boot. So just as a heads up, we're going to move away from wolves briefly to better understand the history of wild places and open spaces of the Upper Green, but pay attention because it all circles back. 
So in the early days, as, as we look north from here, all of the sagebrush country to the north was all open range, all the way, all the way to the mountain. And so in the summer, the cows were outside of this area, would graze up the valley with the green up, just like the wildlife, migrate north into the mountains. And over time, that has become known as the drift. The Green River Drift is Wyoming's oldest stock drive. Back when this drive started, cowboys lived in wagons that moved along with the herd on an open range as far as the eye could see. But for the entire time cattle have existed on the landscape, one challenge has remained constant. The area's extreme borderline biblical weather. But when livestock were brought to this area, some of the settlers from milder climates weren't prepared. And then the uh, winter of 1889 hit, and it killed 90% of the cattle in the valley. When that happened, everybody realized they needed to put up hay, and the big people left the valley. They realized they couldn't just graze year-round. And so basically the valley was settled and built by small ranches. Yeah, so this is important. The incentive to settle under the Homestead Act and the well above average rainfall in the 1880s created a cattle rush throughout the West. It was a first come, first serve opportunity. Once heavy winters were followed by drought, the reality of cattle ranching in the variable West hit home. That's right. Hard winters like what Albert just described were a common occurrence in those days. Another hard winter in 1886 was known as the Great Die Up. Out on the prairie, there are accounts of potatoes being frozen in the hands of early settlers. People had to burn furniture to stay warm because there were no trees on the prairie, and when they ran out of furniture, they froze. The heavy winters of the 1880s were followed by two decades of drought between 1890 and 1910. Known as the long drought, this is just another example of the variability that is characteristic of the West. The West was homesteaded on 160s. All of these ranches are an amalgamation of the Homestead Act. The 160 acres in the West doesn't work. So it's interesting to think about how the Homestead Act created a real shift in humans' relationship with the land. Land ownership was a concept that European settlers brought with them to the West, an idea that Native Americans didn't need. That's a really good point, Alex. By managing large areas as common pool resources and, and moving seasonally with the land and the wildlife, they were really able to overcome uh, a lot of the same challenges of, of scale. And I think that there's really a lot that we can learn there. Scale matters. It's dangerous to scale up in some simple linear way from a small plot where you've done an experiment uh, to a entire allotment or a ranch, let alone uh, a watershed or, or a whole region. So Nathan Sayer, who we just heard, is a professor in the Department of Geography at the University of California, Berkeley. And his book, The Politics of Scale, presents a really amazing account of the past. Nathan has helped me connect the dots to understand the complex interaction between all of these federal lands policies and a frequent mismatch of scales that have led to problems in land management in the West characterized by its variability. One example of a mismatch of these scales is the Homestead Act itself. 
You just can't make a living as a livestock producer off 160 acres in an arid, cold, high desert environment. But over time, the policies were changed, recognizing that there were many places where 160 acres was just not enough. This is the beginning of public lands in the West. But the focus remained on trying to settle as many people as possible, and it was still basically an agrarian vision. Uh, the Homestead Act remained in effect until 1976, when it was repealed by the Federal Land Policy and Management Act. Uh, by that time, about 10% of the United States had been privatized, some 270 million acres. After the Homestead Act, President Theodore Roosevelt signed the 1905 Forest Transfer Act, which created the National Forest. Unlike the Homestead Act, the goal of the Forest Transfer Act was still to maximize the number of settler households in the West by making federal grazing and forest lands open to managed use. Really, to understand the importance of public land grazing goes back to the homestead days. So they actually created desert land entries and grazing homesteads and and put all that together. But even that, for the most part, in these types of valleys is not enough land to make a living on. We have a 2,000 acre ranch and graze on 180,000 acres of public land. Without that 180,000 acres, opposed to 2,000, there's no way we could survive. Albert is putting this all together and illustrating that public lands are closely connected with the economic viability of ranches in the West. And the Forest Transfer Act moved to match the scales to support a livelihood. Then came the Taylor Grazing Act of 1934. This act ended open grazing on public rangelands and solidified a movement that had been gaining momentum to establish well-managed grazing on public lands. So in the Taylor Grazing Act, they created a system of managing rangelands that was really a reaction to the overgrazing that came with the first-come, first-serve approach that created the tragedy of the commons during the homesteading days. If you didn't graze it, somebody else would. And when this Taylor Grazing Act set these public lands aside for multiple uses, there was a rapid uptick in one specific tool to help with this management, fencing. Yeah, well, fence building was huge. You had to fence meadows to keep cattle off that so you could grow the hay. So yeah, it did vastly change the way ranches ran their business from the days of the wagon and the cowboys and the cook that just wandered around the open land. What does fencing and homesteading have to do with wolves? Sit tight and you'll find out. If you're interested in learning more about the homesteading days in the Upper Green, you can head to the Summers Homestead Living History Museum near Pinedale, Wyoming. You can find more information in our show notes. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, folks. We just heard Albert Summers talk about the interconnection of private and public lands with the way the West was settled. Now we're going to bring that back to wolves. So let's jump into one particular instance in time. One scientific study that changed the way federal land managers thought about wolves and livestock and set a ripple effect that eventually led to wolf eradication and then recovery and where we are today. 
Fencing is essential for helping livestock producers manage their range. Nathan Sayer cites one monumentally flawed experiment as kicking off the fencing craze, where in 1907, an effort by the Forest Service to fence a 2,560-acre pasture in Wallowa County, Oregon, was claimed to reduce predation risk on livestock and reduce the need for labor. Four square miles of land were enclosed with a coyote-proof fence that was then guarded by a hunter and stocked with a lightly tended band of sheep. And two years later, success was declared. Two things that came out of that. One was building lots of fences. Another was uh, eliminating predators because one of their goals was, in fact, to reduce the labor costs of raising livestock. And fences that kept out predators were too expensive. But if you got rid of the predators and you had fences, then you didn't need so many cowboys or herders to keep track of your animals. Wow. Well, this sounds like another example of where scale really matters, especially in science. Uh, If you remember, this experiment was on a 2,560-acre allotment in one county in Oregon at one particular place in time, and it got positive results. So it's like, great, this can work now on 10,000-acre pastures everywhere, all the time across the West. While science is important in a lot of contexts, the misapplication of science is just not helpful. And there are definitely special interest groups that cherry-pick their science to reach political ends. And in this particular study, they did not include the cost of the hunter patrolling the fence perimeter, and they significantly reduced the costs of building the fence, assuming that in other places in the West, the ground wouldn't be so rocky, so the fences wouldn't be so expensive to build. Basically, the government ran with the results of the study without considering some key omissions. That's right. And all of these federal land management acts were set up to make it easier and less costly to run livestock, and that included killing carnivores. To carry out this vision, Congress in 1915 gave $125,000. That's equal to $3.5 million in today's money. They gave that money to kill predators on federal lands. This money went to the Bureau of Biological Survey, which is the precursor to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And in the early days of these budding federal bureaucracies, they were really looking to gain agency and validity. And one of the ways that they did that was building upon actions of what was already happening on the ground. That's crazy to think about, but while the government took the lead on predator eradication, I think it's safe to say that wolves and people have a long history and a checkered past that started well before federally sanctioned predator control. My name is Ed Bangs, and I'm a wildlife biologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I was. I've been retired about 11 years now. How'd you get into this type of work? Bad decisions. (laughs) (laughs) You probably know that the Bible is filled with references about wolves. And so the wolf was used as the symbol for the dark side of human nature. He's not kidding here. Like, the Bible is filled with these type of references. Ones like, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And another, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Wild stuff. When the, you know, the colonists, the, the Europeans came to America, the first thing they did was start to kill all the Indians and kill all the wolves to get rid of wildness. They wanted it safe for white, Anglo-Saxon Christians. And that never stopped. And so the government finally got involved. Poisoning carcasses was the choice tool of the Bureau of Biological Survey. 
as they eliminated wolves and other predators from private and public lands. Extermination goes for bison, too. Prior to the turn of the century, subsidized mass hunting wiped out the bison populations. The real intent, let's be honest, in the 1800s was to control Plains Indian tribes by taking away their main food source. And this was all part of a systematic campaign to dispossess Native people of their lands. So again, we're talking about land ownership here. And the mass killing of bison was another way to make room for the many settlers streaming into the region, thanks to the Homestead Act and other land settlement policies. This is an incredibly important part of the story, and for more on this issue, the folks at Threshold Podcast covered this topic really well in the second episode of their season on all things bison in the West. Check it out in the show notes. Okay, Alex, back to Ed Bangs and wolves. And so that pattern happened everywhere. When I was in Alaska, our Super Cub pilot, Vern Burns, uh, started in Alaska right after World War II. He, got, he used his GI Bill to get a pilot, and he spent his first years up there throwing po- poisoned horse meat out of planes and aerial gunning wolves in the middle of freaking nowhere in Alaska just because, you know, to save the moose and caribou, even though there weren't any problems or anything else. He goes, it was completely insane. So we're finally tying it back in. We're bringing back in the upper green. Like most landscapes of the American West, wolves were eliminated from a combination of government-funded eradication and, well, a little bit of help from folks on the ground. My dad tells the story about hearing this, this animal howl. My, my grandfather turned, my, you know, turned to my grandmother and say, Matey, matey, did you hear that? That's a wolf. They saddled up the next morning and they trailed that wolf. And that wolf was later caught on the uh, east side of the valley. And that was the last wolf until in, in the valley until reintroduction. But yeah, my, my grandfather told my dad, who told me about wolves getting into a weaning pen in in a weaning pen in Big Piney and killing 50 head of weaning calves in one night. And, uh, and so there was, no, uh, there was no love for wolves with ranchers. Um, but everything else, you know, I think was just considered part of the landscape. So around the same time, many ungulate species, including elk and deer, were in lower numbers due to unregulated hunting. That left livestock as an increasingly attractive food source, and this made conflicts between wolves and livestock a heck of a lot higher than they are today, with recovered prey species like elk and deer. That's a great point, Alex. The return of large numbers of ungulate species is an often forgotten success story and critical to wolf recovery and reintroduction, which would not even have been possible without the rehabilitation of the wolf's prey base, deer and elk, brought on largely from an effort driven by hunters. Absolutely. But the recovery of wolves also happened due to a major shift in the way most folks think about wildlife, and that's evidenced by the adoption of the Endangered Species Act, which passed Congress in 1973 with nearly unanimous passage on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, 
to think of that. That's really uncommon, it seems like, in today's time. But the Endangered Species Act was a completely bipartisan movement, signaling a broad value shift on this front throughout the country. With wolves, it was a symbol of kind of a advance of science and the, the science of ecology and the thought about Earth Day and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act, Clean Air, all those things came about in the 60s as people just had different values about what it means to live in America and what things are important to them. On the side of range management, there's a whole new series of thought that believes that hoof impact can have positive ecological effects. We're going back to what happened with bison out on the prairie, moving in large herds across the landscape. So the science of keeping cattle evenly dispersed is shifting. We're not staying in the paradigm of 100 years ago. And with that, the return to herding, there's a need for more hands on the land, more eyes on acres. And one of those management tools is range riding. The opportunity for range riders is being able to manage your herd, manage, you know, try to understand the, the presence of large carnivores. There's other allotments, other um, ranches that don't put people out. And, uh, and I think that's a mistake. So to come completely full circle here, Albert oversees a whole network of range riders who are basically cowboys and cowgirls responsible for overseeing livestock out on the range, keeping track of carnivore movement, and even helping identify livestock kills. So going back in time, we took these things away from the range, people, predators, and we left all of our animals out there behind a fence so they wouldn't overgraze. And remember, this system of grazing was scaled from one small study conducted in Wallowa County, Oregon at the turn of the century. And to think about the way ecological research is typically conducted, it's really set up for the duration of a graduate student's tenure, which is often two to five years, and in a specific location. This way of conducting research lends itself to science that's hard to scale across a landscape because it's inherently variable in time and space. And what we are now learning is that in a restored ecosystem that includes predators, the low labor system just doesn't work. We need more hands on the land, more eyes on acres. So are you saying that the end-all be-all solution is, is range riding? No, it's much more complicated than any one solution. In fact, later this season, we'll have two episodes about the solutions, just the tools in the toolbox. But there's also lots of economic issues to consider as well. Okay, uh, that all makes sense. But help me understand how, how this connects to the way the West was settled. So remember earlier in this episode, Albert Summers illustrated that public lands are closely connected with the economic viability of the private lands on these ranches. We have a 2,000 acre ranch and graze on 180,000 acres of public land. Without that, there's no way we could survive. All of us that are on the drift, our living is entirely reliant upon public grazing. And these private lands are the most biodiverse because that's where the water was found. And that's, that makes sense. That's where people first homesteaded. And today, those are the same lands that are most attractive for development. And those are the same lands that are disappearing at an alarming rate. 
But today, here, we've covered a lot, all the way back from the days of homesteading the West, to an experiment gone awry, to wolf eradication, and to today's landscape where wolves are returning. But what we haven't really touched on is who really pays for the added cost of managing these working lands across these biodiverse landscapes that are once again home to predators. And we're going to talk about that in our next episode. Whose blood, sweat, and tears are in your hamburger? You're not going to want to miss this one. See you soon. Working Wild U is a production of Montana State University Extension and Western Landowners Alliance with support from the Arthur M. Blank Family Foundation, Western SARE, and listeners like you. Today's episode was directed and edited by Zach Altman and produced by Matthew Collins, Zach Altman, Alex Few, Jared Beaver, and Abby Nelson. Our hosts are Jared Beaver and Alex Few. Lewis Wirtz is our executive producer. Music is from Artlist and Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Nick Mott, Albert Somers, Ed Bangs, and Nathan Sayre. Be sure to follow Working Wild U on social media and explore our show notes and bonus content on our website at workingwild.us. Please consider rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with a friend or neighbor. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.